Today's scripture comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 16 through 23 and 28 through 30. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for our service. Those of you joining us from home and others here in the sanctuary, thank you so much for being with us. We are continuing today and, in fact, finishing today on our theme of glory. This will be our fourth and final Sunday on the topic. Today, we're going to look at the connection between glory and suffering. Now, I don't particularly like to talk about the topic of suffering because I don't like suffering. I don't think any of us do. We do all we can to try to avoid suffering whenever possible. But the connection between glory, the glory of God, and our present suffering in this world is really unavoidable. It's taught a number of places and particularly emphasized by the apostles Paul and Peter. And so today we're going to look at present suffering, future glory, and what scripture has to say about that. But first, let's review what we've studied so far about the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's been said that the glory of God is one of the more difficult terms in the Christian faith to try to define. The Hebrew word translated as glory in our Old Testament is the word kabod. The word means heavy, weighty, of substance. It's easier to, to, to get a full picture of the meaning of a word, however, when we see how it's used in Scripture. For example, in Exodus 33:18, the word glory in reference to the glory of God seems to refer to a visible manifestation of God's goodness. In Exodus 33, in verse 18, Moses says to the Lord, please show me your glory. God replies to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. God was going to allow Moses to see in part his glory. And it seems that God is, is replying to Moses' request to see his glory with his answer, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you. So from that passage, we can understand, I think, that God's glory is in some way a visible manifestation of his goodness, of who he is. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, we see the glory of God 
manifested as fire on occasion and as cloud on occasion. When the Israelites were being led by Moses out of Egypt, journeying, journeying through the wilderness, <clears throat> God told them that he would be with them as a, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. When Solomon dedicated the temple, as we read in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, he prays a dedicatory prayer there, and then the fire of God comes down and the glory of God fills the temple so that the priest could not even enter the house of the Lord because of the, the presence of his glory there. God's glory further is expressed by beauty and brightness. One of my favorite verses about the glory of God in the Old Testament comes from Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28, where we read these words. <clears throat> like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Could you imagine seeing a beautiful rainbow unobscured and all of its brightness and all of its beauty? Ezekiel says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when we put all these things together, I think we can understand the glory of God as being the beauty, the brightness, the purity, the perfection of God's presence. God's presence visibly displayed. People who've written about the glory of God <clears throat> over the years have used words like joy and satisfaction to refer to uh, a human's experience of God's glory. The people in scripture who encountered God's glory seem always to have been changed by it. Moses certainly was. He had encountered God's glory on Mount Sinai and later says, Lord, please show me your glory. He had a greater longing for the presence of God King David says, I beheld you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. And therefore, he says, earnestly, I seek you, O God. The Apostle Paul was confronted by the glory of Jesus on the Damascus road in a blinding light. And yet Paul became a God seeker and said, I long to depart and be with Christ. The Apostle Peter had seen Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. We studied that a couple weeks ago, and Peter wrote quite a bit about the glory of God as well. Today, however, <clears throat> we're going to look at something written by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 8. Here Paul writes significantly about the connection between present suffering and future glory. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 is really one of the greatest chapters of the Bible, if you could call one chapter greater than any other. We'll study it more in depth when we begin next Sunday, uh, the book of Romans. Later in that study, we'll get to Romans chapter 8 and study it far more in depth than we will today. But here in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul makes this point. Present suffering, for the believer that is, for the follower of Jesus, cannot even compare with future glory. And he writes in verse 17 of this passage, if children, that is, if as believers we are children of God, and we are, then we're also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. So it certainly sounds like uh, for the believer, suffering is part of the package. But we should also know that for the follower of Jesus, all suffering, all suffering has an end. And what is ahead is not even worth comparing with that suffering. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul wrote extensively about this connection between glory and suffering elsewhere. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes these words, and to me, his words here are really remarkable because of the way he describes his own sufferings. He says, for this light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, now, how could Paul call his own afflictions light and momentary? If you've ever read the New Testament <clears throat> or studied the life, of the life of the Apostle Paul, you could see that his ministry is almost synonymous with suffering, and his suffering was extensive. He enumerates some of his sufferings later in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he writes that he suffered countless beatings. He was often near death. Five times, he said, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Thirty-nine times his back was lashed, and that happened five different times. <clears throat> Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. He goes on and on and on and on and on. So this is the man that tells us <laughs> this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The sufferings of this life cannot compare with future glory. Paul was not the first follower of Jesus to experience significant suffering. Many of Jesus' early followers did. <clears throat> and the first, I believe, to, to actually give his life in the service of Jesus was a deacon, a deacon whose story is found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, there were uh, several deacons appointed for the early church, and one of them was a man named Stephen. And after Stephen had been appointed to join other deacons to go out and serve food for, for widows in the uh, regular distribution of food, Stephen began taking other steps and began um, preaching and, and apparently praying for people because great wonders and signs were done by him. And the religious people didn't like it a bit. But Stephen stood up and began to boldly preach. And as a crowd gathered, people were enraged because his preaching brought them conviction of sin. Scripture says in Acts chapter 7, they cast Stephen out of the city and began to stone him with stones. And here's what happens. In Acts chapter 7, in verse 55, as Stephen is at the doorway of death, being literally stoned to death, the Bible says that he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. To me, that's so beautiful. 
because we know Jesus, the Lord Jesus, sits at the right hand of the Father at his throne. Here as Stephen is about to leave this life, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen sees the glory of God. I wonder if he even felt the stones at that point. The Apostle Paul makes the point that present suffering cannot compare with future glory. He goes on further in Romans chapter 8 and teaches us that in this life, we Christians are actually waiting for something, waiting for something that we'll experience after this life in eternity. Now, sometimes when I say something like that, I wonder if some people are going to think, wow, that's, that's really irresponsible to be thinking about eternity when there's so many needs in the world here. Sounds like irresponsible escapism, neglecting all there is to do here. And I would say to that, that is not at all the case. Because Christians, and I think history bears this out, who live with an eternal perspective toward life, do far more to serve the Lord, to help the poor, to serve the needy, to reach the lost here in this life than other people. And I think that's because having an eternal perspective frees people, frees us to use our time, to use our energy, to use our resources for things that really do count for eternity. That perspective also strengthens us in the sufferings that we face in this life. And that's really what Paul's talking about here. We Christians are waiting for something, this glory that's beyond all comparison. And he writes this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in, in the pains of childbirth until now. Now that follows his statement that creation itself, because of humanity's sin that is, has been subject to its bondage to corruption. That is, the very creation in which we live has been affected by human sin. Paul says it's groaning, looking forward to something. And he says not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. What are we waiting for? And he notes that it's the fullness of our adoption as children of God, the redemption of our bodies. This is really important, friends, to understand. It's, it's not something that's talked about a lot. But there is a part of our redemption as Christians that is not yet complete. And that is the redemption of our bodies. In this life, our bodies are aging. And the Apostle Paul says else, elsewhere, the outward man is perishing, but the inward man's being renewed. But there will come a day when our bodies are redeemed. And uh, theologians speak of that sometimes as glorification. Glorification. The final and full redemption of our bodies that happens when Christ returns. Glorification. When we are actually glorified and received glorified bodies. Now, there are a number of passages in Scripture that talk about this. So it's, if it's new to you, we'll look at a few of those real quickly. Number one, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, 
but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, this takes place, I believe, when Jesus returns. If you or I were to die today, and you're a believer in Jesus, I believe that we would go immediately to God's presence in heaven as spiritual beings, but we won't receive our glorified bodies, the redemption of our bodies, until the return of Christ. And at that time, Paul says, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, is there anywhere else in the New Testament that talks about this? There is. You'll see some verses overhead. The first one from Colossians chapter 3. On your screen, rather, you'll see these. When Christ, who is your life, appears, that is, when Jesus comes back, when he returns, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, the return of Jesus is going to be a wonderful thing, but for people who are unsaved, who have rejected him, who have not received his saving grace and what he's done on the cross for us in his death there and his resurrection, his return will be terrifying, frankly. The Apostle Paul writes regarding those who do not believe and do not receive the Lordship of Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. He will be glorified in us. We will be with him in glory. And that's why the Apostle Paul, getting back to Romans chapter 8, writes the words that you see before you. Some of the most uh, significant words, I think, to, to summarize the, the fullness of the work of God for the believer. Paul writes it this way. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. To predestine means to plan ahead. He planned ahead. He called. He drew by his spirit. And those who are, are saved, he justified. To be justified means Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins and credited us with his unrighteousness. But then Paul says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now that hasn't happened yet because Jesus hasn't returned yet. We haven't yet been glorified. But it is so certain that Paul speaks of it as an accomplished, settled fact. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The Apostle Paul <clears throat> says, we're groaning inwardly and we're waiting eagerly for this. We are longing for this completeness, this satisfaction, this fullness, this joy, this joy that will outlast and far exceed anything we've ever known in this world. C.S. Lewis, Christian philosopher, writer, sometimes spoke of this. In fact, one of his famous messages is entitled Weight of Glory. And he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation 
is that I was made for another world. And for the believer, for the believer, there is something ahead that the Apostle Paul says is far greater. And Paul says, we wait for that eagerly. Present suffering cannot compare, Paul says, with future glory, uh, future glory by comparison. These afflictions are light and moment, momentary, not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Further, in this life, we Christians are waiting for something in eternity far, far greater. The experience of glorification with God in Him. And then thirdly, in the here and now, we Christians, we believers, are called to faith-sustained suffering. Now, in talking about suffering, I want to be, be careful not to suggest we're supposed to be groveling in suffering. We don't have to look for suffering. Suffering will find us easily enough. But we don't need to be afraid to suffer for Jesus' sake. We never need to be afraid of persecution, loss of friends, loss of rep uh, reputation, rejection. But suffering comes for other reasons, doesn't it? Sometimes suffering in life comes because you are a Christian. Sometimes it comes because as a Christian, you are a target for the devil, Satan, the evil one. The Bible teaches that he, he wars against the saints. The apostle Peter writes that your adversary, the devil, like, like a roaring lion, goes around seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being accomplished by your brethren throughout the world. It's a type of suffering when you have to stand against the attacks of the devil. There's suffering in this life that is, is Paul would say, is just suffering of this present time. Sufferings of this present time, not worth comparing to the future glory. It's simply part of the human condition, part of the fallen world. And I would say, however, and I think it, it, it's important to add, because the Apostle Peter adds this, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a criminal. Suffering that is our own fault that we bring on ourselves for our own sin, our own crime, our own slackness at work, that doesn't qualify. But these other forms of suffering, for the believer who is walking with God, we are called to endure with faith in God. And the Apostle Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 8 some of the most faith-strengthening teaching about how we can go through suffering with the renewing strength and help of God. Three ways Christians are called to face sustained suffering with, first of all, the help of the Holy Spirit. As Paul continues his teaching in Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> he writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for himself with grinnings too deep for words. I just have to pause for a minute and say, it's almost hard to believe the Apostle Paul wrote these words. We don't know how to pray as we ought. We don't know what to pray for as well, because the Apostle Paul is a model of prayer. And many of the prayers that we learn are prayers that he wrote to the churches in the New Testament. But Paul is acknowledging his own inadequacy, his own insufficiency, his own dependency. The reason Paul was so empowered 
is because he knew his weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. A Christian is never alone when he's praying. A Christian who, who, who goes apart to seek God, she's never alone when she's praying. The Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit is, is with you when you're praying. And in suffering, when you don't know what to pray, when you don't know how to pray, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, God the Spirit is there. <clears throat> Secondly, Christians are called to face sustained suffering with the intercession of Jesus. Paul goes on to write, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. Jesus interceded for us when he died on the cross. He took our place. He became our substitute. He bore our judgment. He's the one who died. More than that, who was, who was raised. And because of that, no one can condemn us. But there's more. Jesus now, today, is at the right hand of the Father, and he is indeed interceding for us. He interceded for us on the cross, but he's also interceding for us now. If you're a believer, Jesus Christ, your Savior, your Lord, is your great high priest representing you right now, today, for the throne of your Father God. And when you are praying, when you are struggling, and when you are suffering, you have one there who knows your need. He has not forgotten you, regardless how you feel. The very hairs of your head are numbered, Jesus said. You are on his heart. He is your great intercessor, your great high priest. And he is easily moved with the feelings of your infirmities and your sufferings. He knows them. His spirit is helping you pray. And he himself is interceding for you before the Father, God. This is what Romans, <coughs> excuse me, Romans 8 is teaching us. Excuse me. Thirdly, Christians are called to face sustained suffering with the assurance of God's eternal love. Paul is going to close out Romans 8 with some of the most beautiful words in the New Testament. When he writes this, and again, his theme that's woven throughout the chapter uh, it's significantly interwoven with this idea of suffering, present suffering, future glory. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness <clears throat> or danger sword? And I would add, or the sufferings that you're facing right now. Nothing you suffer can separate you from God's love. And then he quotes an Old Testament verse. As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We regard as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, <clears throat> nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one, no thing, no demon, 
no person. Satan himself cannot separate you from God's love. Now, I recognize that sometimes we don't feel his love. And that's why we need one another. Oftentimes, the love of God for a Christian is manifest through another Christian. That's why we're a body. That's why we're a spiritual family. That's why we need one another. That's why the New Testament repeatedly calls us to encourage one another. And so, as we conclude our series on glory today, I want to raise this question, or these questions rather, by way of application. Number one, how can an understanding of future glory affect the way I live now? And that's exactly what is supposed to happen. Our understanding of eternity, future glory, is supposed to affect the way we live now. How can it affect the way I use my, my time, my money, my influence? You know, Jesus is the one who said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He talked about the value of laying up treasure in heaven. Our, our heart should be with the Lord in eternity. Paul would write elsewhere, set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. Understanding what's ahead for the child of God when this life ends, and it will if Jesus does not return first, should affect the way we use our time, our money, our influence for the glory of God. How can an understanding of future glory affect my goals, my dreams in life? Are your goals and dreams being shaped through the lens of an eternal perspective? So that you're letting God use your life to do something of eternal significance and value. And then thirdly, how can my understanding of future glory affect my endurance <clears throat> in suffering? As Paul said, as he wrote in Romans 8.18, <clears throat> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I pray for your people right now. I pray for those who are suffering, and I think of so many in our church who are suffering terribly difficult things. I pray that you would today, by your Holy Spirit, for those watching from home, for those here in our sanctuary, that you would move in power by your Holy Spirit to bring healing, to bring encouragement, to bring renewing strength, that your people would be fully aware of the great comforter, the Holy Spirit, fully aware of our great high priest, Jesus, interceding for us, fully aware of the greatness of your eternal love that is poured upon us by your Spirit. Strengthen your people, encourage your people, build up your body. <clears throat> and now, Lord, I pray for your people the words of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. Would you enable us, Father, to do these things? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.